You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, hi, how are you? I'm great. Mike, how are you? I'm, I'm great. Like, it's cutting further enough into the season where we can actually start looking at data while putting enormous small sample size caveats and everything, but stuff's starting to happen, and it's getting a little meaningful, so I'm excited about that. So uh, on today's show, we're going to start off by talking about Aaron Judge, who is immediately the most interesting man in baseball, uh, and we've got some interesting numbers on which outfielders are positioning themselves a little differently, uh, the fastest runners that we're seeing so far, and then we have to look at outfielders, right? Catch probability. We're very excited about this. So we've got a lot of cool stuff on the show for you today, but First, I think we have to start with Aaron Judge, who is, uh, I guess, moving up the rankings of the coolest judges with Mike Judge and Judge Reinhold, right? Where does, does Aaron Judge rank up there now? Um, Jonathan Judge, I guess. He's uh, probably no, on that list number three with a bullet. So uh, Actually, you know, well, I'll put him ahead of Judge Reinhold. So we're, as we are, uh, yes, good, good choice there. As we are uh, taping the show, it's Thursday afternoon, and uh, yesterday, Matt and I were in attendance in the Bronx to watch uh, the Yankees and the Rays, and Aaron Judge destroyed a baseball. He just crushed it to dead center field above the batter's eye. And uh, I don't know if you saw exactly where that ball was when he hit it. He didn't even get to extend his arms. Did you realize that? He still had to kind of short arm it, and he still crushed it, like, what was it, 437 feet to dead center. It was like, it was an, in, it was like an inside-out forehand crushed out to Monument Park, and it wasn't even the hardest hit ball he had in the game. No, it wasn't. He uh, Earlier in the game, he had a 116.5-mile-an-hour single that I believe almost took Jumbo Diaz's head off when it went right past him. I was impressed that Jumbo Diaz was quick enough to get out of the way of that. It was absolutely smoked. So we are only talking about uh, 29 plate appearances worth of Aaron Judge so far, but he already has five of the 12 hardest hit balls of the year. And I think we're learning, I mean, we have learned in the first couple years of StatCast that exit velocity, uh, it's not the end-all be-all, but it's absolutely a skill. It's a skill Giancarlo Stanton has. It's a skill Billy Hamilton doesn't have. Uh, and it's pretty clear that that's a skill Aaron Judge has, right? I mean, this is what he does, and this is what we're seeing. He's like the first legitimate competition we're seeing for Giancarlo Stanton in terms of pure exit velocity. Yeah, if you look at, so I said he had five of the, the 12 hardest hit balls of the year. Uh, here's the interesting thing, though. If you look at these, two of them are singles. One's a ground out. The other one's a grind into a double play. And the other one's a fielder's choice out. So it's not like he's got five dingers and these five crush balls. Actually, none of these have been dingers. And I think we learned a little bit about this last year with Giancarlo Stanton at the home run derby where it's like there is actually too much exit velocity because you don't get enough loft on the ball. Like I'm looking at this list here of the 12 hardest hit balls of the year. Only three of them have been home runs, which is it's not really what you'd think. Yeah, right? because you know to, to, to hit the ball as hard as you possibly can, you want to get it flush on the barrel. Um, but that means you're basically going to get no, you're not no uppercut. So basically, the hardest hit balls, the hardest hit ball in the Statcast era, 123 plus miles an hour, was grounded into a double play by Stanton, right. of and course. It, you know the hardest hit ball so far this year, 118.1 miles an hour by Eric Hosmer, uh, and it was a ground out. And that's kind of been the Eric Hosmer story a little bit too, is we know he can hit the ball hard, but it's on the ground. And so we've been kind of talking about this a lot, like elevate the ball. What I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of sidetracking us from Aaron Judge for a second. I know this. I'm really excited about Ryan Zimmerman right now. We talked about he had a top 10 exit velocity last year, and he was just generally atrocious. And Daniel Murphy spent all winter talking about how he was going to teach him to elevate. Ryan Zimmerman's crushing the ball right now. So that's a guy to watch. I took us off the Aaron Judge track. But if you look at Aaron Judge, he's cut his strikeouts in half. Again, 29 plate appearances. I know nothing matters. Where are you on him? Are you buying it? I've 
always been a bit of an Aaron Judge skeptic. Um, just, you know, he always struck out a lot in the minors. And usually, you know, like strikeout rates in the minors are usually because the pitchers aren't as good. If you strike out at a already somewhat unsustainable rate in the minors and then do it again in your first cup of coffee in the majors, to me it's like a huge red flag. It's part of why I'm not completely tr- – I've never really bought into Joey Gallo either. Um, so I've always been pretty skeptical of Aaron Judge for that reason. Plus, like, you know, the track record of six foot seven and taller hitters in Major League history is admittedly pretty – it's a pretty narrow group, but it's also not a very good one. Players that tall just generally have not succeeded as hitters for the kind of the same reason. It's hard to keep a short swing. You know, there, there are holes in the swing that can be exploited. So I've always been incredibly skeptical. The strikeout rate, strikeout rate generally stabilizes a little quicker. It's still too quick, too early to say if it's – you know, this is the new Aaron Judge, but uh, this is impressive. And just the amount of quality contact he's making when he's making contact. Yeah, the other thing about players that large is they have a hard time staying healthy. You know, we've kind of seen this with Stanton over the last couple of years, just a lot of lower body injuries. And there are very few guys who have been able to last, you know, 10 full years in the big leagues or anything like that. But I don't know if Aaron Judge is going to be a superstar. I'm taking the under on the 379 OBP he's got right now. I'm taking the under on the 692 slugging he's got right now. But... I don't know if, if he has to be a superstar for me to find him fascinating. He's the closest thing we have to Giancarlo Stanton, which I feel terrible saying the guy's 29 plate appearances into a season. But it's, it's kind of true. Right? I mean, even when he was coming up last year, that was sort of the, the discussion. I think, I mean, to me, I'm also, I think Sano kind of belongs in that class as well. And sort of like the, the closest thing we, when we're, we're talking about the closest thing we have to Giancarlo Stanton. But Judge um, is certainly like distinguishing himself in a way that's just fascinating. I mean, if you, you know, there's a lot of conversation about, you know, more strikeouts in the game and more walks and all that stuff. But if you like, if you're a fan of the home run, there's never been a better time to be a fan of baseball. It seems like every night, like last night, you know, yesterday during the day we had Judge hit that massive home run to the center. We had Stanton hit a low liner to home run and a moonshot home run. The night before we had Cespedes hit three home runs, one of which was in just an absolute laser down the line. So if you're a fan of not just dingers, but just like, different types of aesthetically pleasing dingers, this is an amazing time to be a fan of baseball. And and it's a good time to be a fan of young Yankee hitters because Gary Sanchez, by the way, is on this list of hardest hit balls too. Uh, 115.7 miles an hour in what I believe was his first plate appearance of the season against Chris Archer, and obviously now he's hurt and he's going to be out for the next couple weeks, uh, which is unfortunate because I love Gary Sanchez. I think we should move on to outfields because I'm really excited about being able to see who's playing deeper and who's not playing deeper. Uh, but first, a quick reminder, if you haven't listened to the Cut Forecast, you really should because it's super fun. Uh, it's from the staff of our Cut 4 section, and they focus on the lighter side of baseball. Uh, it'll make you laugh. You might learn something. If you listen to this week's episode, of course they were going to talk about the cat on the field at Marlins Park. And uh, I didn't even know this was a thing. Apparently the, Mar- the Mariners serve toasted grasshoppers at Safeco Field. So now I have to go listen to this because I need to learn about that. So if that sounds something cool for you, search the Cut Forecast, C-U-T number four, C-A-S-T in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and do subscribe to them because they're super fun uh, and they take things way less seriously than we do, which is great. Speaking of taking things seriously, outfield positioning. We talked about this a lot over the last two years, right? Dexter Fowler moved back. Everybody knows this. We're looking at a very small amount of data, but I feel like this is the kind of thing that stabilizes relatively quickly. I guess I don't know for sure, but it feels like that, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess if you had a, if you happen to play a four-game series against a team with a bunch of sluggers or a four-game series in Coors Field, it might skew your numbers a little bit at this time time of year. But generally speaking, I think this would probably you know, stabilize pretty quickly. So what we have here is a list in our hands. Uh, I'm looking at 80 outfielders who are on the field for 500 pitches in both 2016 and 2017. And it's not necessarily 80 different people because you could qualify both in right field and center field, but that's kind of the way we have it sorted right now. 
And what's interesting, I'm looking at the list of the 10 guys who are playing deeper this year. And uh, the first name on the list who's playing deeper, plus 18 feet from last year, it makes some sense to me because this is a guy who also changed teams last year. So that's Carlos Gomez. Uh, started out in Houston and then went to Texas. And now he's playing what feels like an extremely deep 333 feet. But as you mentioned before you we went on the air, last year's deepest center fielder was Ian Desmond, who was at the time a Texas Ranger outfielder. Yeah, he was. his average on the year was 329, which I think was the deepest of basically any qualified outfielder, which we sort of chalked up to him being an experienced center fielder because if you looked at the list of deepest center fielders, the, I, um, the, the top was littered with some of these guys who were – not center fielders by trade. Um, there's another a player from the name from the A's whose name escapes me right now. Um, Are you thinking Brett Eibner? He's an outfielder. Yes, but he's that, an outfielder. I think you're thinking of guys from uh, Arizona, like Chris Owings was. Yes, in a, yes, so. Owings and Eibner both come to mind. They were not natural center fielders, I should say. Yeah. But anyway, so that was a theme. But seeing Gomez here makes me think that this is a a Rangers thing as much as anything. Yes, and uh, number two on the list, okay, it's, you know, Travis Jankowski playing left field. That's a big outfield in San Diego. And also they just played three-game series of cores, so that could be well, there could be some noise exactly there. Right. We are not talking about large samples here, which I don't want to have to say it every 10 seconds, but an overall caveat for the show and for the entire month is that everything is a small sample. JT Realmuto not going to hit 500 all season long. So this stuff could easily change, but it's still interesting to see what's happening. Here's the list, the name on this list that interests me beyond belief right now. The number three outfielder, the number two out, the center fielder, who's playing deeper right now, Adam Jones. And we all know Adam Jones loves to play shallow. He uh, averaged last year 307 feet, which was uh, tied for the shallowest center fielder. And now he's playing 323 feet. That's actually a little deeper than usual. And we've talked about Adam Jones a lot on this show. We talked about that WBC catch. And if you remember what we said for that catch, he was playing like 14 or 15 feet deeper than he usually does, which put him in position to make that catch. And now here we are a week plus into the season and it seems like this is an actual thing that's happening. That's cool. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk more about the Orioles' uh, well, outfield defense cool. later. <laughs> but it is it it's 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 fascinating because this is you know this is the kinds of thing we're able to see when when player you know this is part of why I like uh, this outfield positioning data really fa- fascinates me is because you hear players or teams talk about this sort of thing, but you were never before able to sort of like really drill down and be like, okay, well they say they're going to play deeper or shallower. What can, what do we know? And now we know. That you know the, the Orioles had hinted they were going to change their positioning, and so far we're seeing it, particularly with their their center fielder. Yeah, and you know another couple of guys playing deeper are guys who moved teams. Malik Smith is on a different team now. Uh, Rajay Davis is on a different team now. Matt Joyce is on a different team. It is interesting to see Lorenzo Cain playing a little deeper because it always feels like he's been in the best position, but. I think as we learned when I looked at Kendris Morales recently, that outfield in Kansas City, it's very underrated just how large it is. The square footage is, is he's got so much room to cover, um, and it's interesting to see him playing deeper. And what I like about this is a former teammate of his who's now in Seattle is actually someone who's playing much shallower, having left Kansas City. That's Gerard Dyson, who is uh, playing 14 feet shallower, uh, one of the, the guys who has moved in the most, and I think that that's interesting. But I look at the uh, shallower list right now, and there's a couple names that stand out. Uh, number one is that Josh Reddick is playing a lot shallower. That makes sense. He's now not a Dodger. Hey, he's in Houston. We know that the right field fence is a lot shallower. Uh, Matt's favorite player, Jake Marisnik, is playing shallower in Houston, but that makes sense too because they brought the wall in. There's just not as much center field as that used to be. Billy Hamilton is playing 12 feet shallower. I don't have a good answer for that. I find it fascinating. Scott Shebler, the right fielder, is also playing shallower. Well, I think we should go back to the Hamilton for a second because if this holds, yeah. this is – Really fascinating. Right. right now, he's been playing 299 feet away. Last year, the league leader, the league shallower, was 307. Was 307. So, like, right now, he's playing extremely shallow. And again, 
small sample, but it's to me that's really interesting that the best center field, basically the guy with the most range in baseball, is suddenly playing shallower than anyone else. Yeah, and so this kind of gets into where we want to be in the future, which which is breaking down the skills. Like, is he faster in this direction rather than that direction? I think we're close to getting there. I don't know the answer to that yet, but I'll be interested to see if this actually helps him or not. Because most guys coming in, it hasn't really worked out as well for them, and maybe it's something to do with the pitching staff where they think the balls are going to land. I don't know, but that was a name that surprised me when I saw that. Right? Yeah, for sure. Um, I do actually want to go back to the deeper positioning for a second because there's on the, there's two other guys on that list. We're on the same team. Uh, we've got Michael Brantley, which sort of makes sense. He's he's coming back from injury, you know, but he's actually playing deeper. So you would think his injury was a throwing it was a shoulder injury. I'm not actually to be honest. I'm not even sure if it was throwing shoulder anyway. But any injury, a guy playing deeper, you can actually see why that would make sense. But also Tyler Naquin's playing a lot deeper. So I wonder if it's a philosophical thing for the Indians of wanting to play their outfielders deeper. You, you reminded me of something, and I don't have the data in front of me because I got all distracted this morning. You know who's playing deeper? He didn't quite make the top 10 deeper list. Bryce Harper's playing deeper. You know, when we talked about this last year, he wasn't hitting that well. Everybody's like, oh, he, maybe he's got a shoulder injury. And we showed that as the months went on, he was playing shallower. I think by the end of the year, he was playing like 279. And now he's back up into the 280s, and he's crushing the ball. So if you need some evidence that maybe he was hurt, maybe he's feeling better, I think that's got a – it's circumstantial evidence, I, I suppose, but that adds to the discussion there, uh, which I think is really cool. So, you know, this is something we're obviously going to keep a lot of track of. It's kind of fun to see, like, Howie Kendrick is playing shallower in left field for the Phillies. You know, is that a Phillies thing as opposed to the Dodgers? Is it a Howie Kendrick thing? Um, I don't know, but I, I just find this all really interesting, and I, I think you do as well. No question. All right. So what we're actually going to do here is, uh, since we were talking about it, about outfielders, we're going to stick with outfielders for a second, and then we're going to finish up with uh, some interesting speed things. As you all most likely know, we introduced catch probability this year based on how far an outfielder has to go and how much time he has to get there, and very soon uh, direction as well, and later on uh, distance to the wall. You can put a catch percentage on every single batted ball. So you can say that ball that Billy Hamilton caught and made a great play on was caught 5% of the time. That really was a great play. You can kind of do it from the other end as well. And then we put uh, star ratings on all of them. So we said, if you caught a ball that only is caught between 1% of the time and 25% of the time, that's a five-star catch. Uh, between 26% and 50% is a four-star catch. And then uh, between 51% and 75% is a three-star catch. So those are equal 25% bands. And then the bands get a little smaller as you go down the line. Anyway, what we have here is our first look at a 2017 leaderboard so far of which teams and which players have made the most catches three stars or above. So anything that's a 75% catch probability play and more difficult, so lower, right? And, and yes, and to, you know, to a key thing to remember with catch probability that I think is part of the education process is that these catches are not equally dis dis distributed. Uh, so what ends up happening is that like, what three-star catches are actually pretty rare. And even though maybe it doesn't sound quite as impressive, you know, you know, most catches are one star or zero catch, cans of corn that, you know, most even like high school outfielders could catch, you know. So then we, we, the three-star catches is where you start to see real skill show up. That's why we're using three stars and above because right. that's really where, we, where the, the, the differences are made. I think that, let's see, I looked this up recently. The amount of catches that are actually rated as three stars and above even though the catch probability on that goes up to 75%, I think the actual number of catches is something like 14%. Like, more than 80% of catches are relatively easy. You know, zero star or one star, two star. So we have our first look at the leaderboards here. And uh, when I looked at this this morning, I was really, really happy at who showed up, uh, which team showed up as not only having the most three-star catches, but the highest percentage. Three, three plus, three uh, plus. Three plus, excuse me. Uh, the Seattle Mariners, they have 12 three-star catches out of 17 chances. It's a 71%. 
And I think that's really cool because they made a lot of changes. They very specifically said, we have a big outfield. We want to get younger and more athletic. So they already had Leonis Martin. They went out and got Gerard Dyson, who we all know is a wonderful outfielder. Uh, Mitch Hannigan, uh, Mitch Hanniger, excuse me, from Arizona, who uh, seems like he's a pretty good outfielder. They traded away Seth Smith, who's never really been regarded as a great outfielder. And here is a team that very specifically said, here's our plan. And the numbers bear it out. That's yeah, amazing. I mean, not everything has been going right for Seattle this well, year. Well, you know, they haven't been winning, so there's but that. But the, in terms of their plan of putting in together an outfield defense, um, that's worked out well. In terms of individuals, just to give you an example, and we'll, get, we'll go through the individuals again in a second, but just to give you an example, the most three-plus star catches this year, uh, two guys have five, Jackie Bradley Jr. and Gerard Dyson. Leonis Martin has four, and then no one else. There are only three guys with four or more. So the Mariners have two of those guys, and there's a bunch of guys with three. Mitch Hanniger is one of them. Yes. So that, it's that, that, that corresponds to the narrative, I yeah. guess. Right? And what's cool is if you look at the, other, at the top of this list, there are four teams who have uh, converted at least 60% of these three-plus stars catches and outs. Uh, Seattle makes a ton of sense. Chicago, okay, that Cubs, that makes uh, Even Kyle Schwarber has one, has a three-star catch. Kyle Schwarber has one. Uh, the Twins, and now we've talked at length about Byron Buxton. He probably struck out four more times while we're doing this podcast, but he has been amazing in the outfield. Uh, and the Rays, and that, of course, makes sense because not only did they have Kevin Kiermaier, they went out and got Malik Smith. And they, and they have Steven Bur- Susan. And, Steven Z- and Peter Burgess. So they actually kind of went out and built this super defensive outfield as well. So that's kind of cool. And then you look at the bottom. There is actually one team who has not made a three-star catch yet, and I think we already kind of uh, said who this might be. It's the Baltimore Orioles. So even though Adam Jones is playing deeper, he's still surrounded by Seth Smith and, uh, and, and Kim, and I think sometimes Trumbo still gets out there, and Mancini. It's, it's not great. And also the fact that he's playing deeper isn't necessarily make him more likely to make no. three-star catches. No, it just makes all. it more likely that he would make you know be in better position to make cut off extra base hits. But yeah, that, I mean, the, the, the Orioles are not a team that's designed for outfield defense, to be, to be clear. There's yeah. a team that's built to win on power and bullpen. Now, it's a little bit about the opportunities as well, because I'm kind of looking here, and, you know, like the Nationals have had 18 three-star opportunities. You know, the Mariners have had 17. Uh, there's a couple teams that have only had six. And if you look at some of these teams, the Reds, the White Sox, the Padres, none of those teams have very good pitching staffs. So I'm wondering if they're just giving up hits that are impossible, that we're grading as 0% because <laughs> they're either leaving the park or they're just like, there's no chance. Well, the Reds... One of the pleasant surprises on the young season, and their bullpen sure. has been surprisingly good. And I looked this up today. Their bullpen has the lowest exit velocity against of all 30 clubs. That is easily the most shocking thing I think I've heard <laughs> all year. Because the Reds, last year's Red Bull, Reds bullpen was, and I say this without hyperbole, historically bad. Yes. It was one of the worst we've that's ever why seen. This is, that's why this is shocking. Yes. <laughs> so I, I, it is a little bit about opportunity. If you're positioning yourself so well, like we thought maybe Kiermaier was last year, if your pitching staff just isn't giving you the opportunities – uh, you're not going to be able to make those catches, but still, if you only have zero or if you only have one, like the Cardinals, like the Dodgers, then that's obviously not going to be great. Yeah, I mean the Cardinals, the Cardinals being one for twelve um, this year and three plus stark, three plus stark opportunities that stands out to me. This is a team that made a big deal about how okay we're getting Fowler, we're going to yeah. move Richard to left, our defense outfield is going to be well, they, better. They said that, and then Matt Adams is playing Ex- left exactly. All the time, so I don't really know what the plan is. Exactly, anymore. there's definitely a bit of a definitely a bit of a contradiction there. And it's definitely showing it. The numbers are bearing that out. So, yeah, the, the Orioles are over 9. Cardinals are 1 for 12. Dodgers are 1 for 10. Those are kind of the three standouts in terms of, like, poor in terms of, like, volume and percentage con- conversion rate. Yeah, so as I said, there's about, let's see, 10 guys or so who have had at least three uh, three-plus star catches. And as we said, you know, Bradley, Dyson, Martina at the top, that's not surprising. The list of guys who have had three is kind of cool because uh, Kiermaier, that makes sense. Mookie Betts, uh, Byron Buxton, that all makes sense. It's good to see A.J. Pollock back. We know that really killed the Diamondbacks pitchers last year because the defense was poor because he was hurt. 
And uh, Mitch Hanniger is up there with three. So that's kind of cool. This so basically it, it it passes the smell test. Like there's Harper, uh, Gerardo Parra. You know, used to be a, an elite outfielder. You know, has had some injuries. And so I think that's kind of cool. And you look at the guys who've had two, um, Brett Gardner, that makes sense. Kepler, Aaron Judge back there making some catches. Mark Hakis, And then Jay Bruce, who is another guy like Ryan Zimmerman, crushing the ball, trying to elevate, which I know I'm like beating like it's a dead horse, but I will throw that horse into the air. I will elevate the horse. <laughs> so it's, it's like we said, it's so early, but it's really fun to see the data coming out. No question. Who else on the list stands out to you? Anybody interesting? Um... Mike Trout doesn't have any, but he's 0 for 1. So. Well, so we should clarify, we are not really accounting for the wall, as we've said, and he did make an amazing catch the other night that did not count for him as a five-star catcher, whatever it was. We've talked about the wall a lot, I think. It's, we're never gonna, it's never going to be satisfying. It's opportunity and skill. Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, that Trout catch from the other night is one that I think was actually a pretty routine catch. It was, a, it was dramatic because, you know, if he messes up, it's a home run. But in reality, that is legit. Unlike the Adam Jones play from the WBC where he had to, like, you, like, take a real jump and time a jump. Trout's was like... The, the way I've started to come to think about it is what's cooler, right? A 500-foot home run in a game that's a 10-run blowout or a 312-foot home run around the pesky pole that's a walk-off. It, they're both very cool, but for extremely different reasons, not all of which are in the player's control. So, you know, we've talked about that a lot. There is one more thing we want to get to, and, uh, you know, we're, we are, in the coming weeks, I think, going to be rolling out something new about speed. And... Yeah, I think one of the things we learned is that last year we tried to do speed like miles per hour, and that kind of made sense because that's something people understand. It just didn't really work out the way we, we expected it would for a lot of reasons, and I think one of them is just simply that uh, you don't, when you look at a baseball field, measuring anything in terms of a mile doesn't make a great deal of sense, and measuring anything in terms of an hour uh, other than the game itself doesn't make a great deal of sense. Now, understandably, that's the way it is for exit velocity and, and anything with the ball. That's just never going to change. Like pitch velocity has been reported like that for decades. We're never going to change that. So we've been thinking about this in a different way, and we're going to start measuring things uh, kind of in like speed, uh, feet per second. And it's not going to be at an instant because that kind of was misleading. It's going to be over a guy's like window, his one-second window. So that's cool. That's kind of a tease for what we're going to be doing in a couple of weeks. And uh, we'll probably end up doing an entire show about that, which I think will be a lot of fun. You can measure guys' speed not only on the bases and not only in the outfield, but based on whether he's catching the ball or not. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. But what I have here for you right now is just a, something pretty simple. It is uh, a leaderboard of the fastest home-to-first times so far this year in seconds. And the reason I chose that is because it's obviously equal 90 feet for everybody. And I also filtered out the bunts because if you're bunting, you can usually get out the gate a little bit quicker. And what I like about this is not that there's names here that are necessarily going to like shock and awe you, but the fact that uh, the names that are here are exactly the names you'd expect to be, which is great. Not only does it kind of make sure make me feel like the the equipment is is running properly, but you know it sort of aligns with what you expect. Then you can put some numbers to exactly what you've seen, right? So for example, right now, Billy Hamilton is the is the fastest home to first. We have the top two actually, three point eight two seconds, three point eight four seconds. But when I look up and down this list, I see Hamilton, I see Kiermaier, who I think is underrated in terms of speed, and we're going to be talking about that in the next couple of weeks. There's D Gordon, who you kind of forgot about last year because he was suspended and didn't play very well. Uh, Altuve is up there. Malik Smith, who I think well, people are starting to learn is really fast. And Altuve is interesting, too, because he's the one right-handed hitter on this list. Yes. <laughs> is he, well, yeah, you're right. Kiermaier is a left-handed hitter, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like Rajay Davis is there. I guess Hamilton's a switch hitter, but I'm going to guess that a lot of these, a lot of these are from lefties. on the left side. Yeah. So, I mean, it's Emilio Bonifacio, who I keep forgetting not only exists, but is actually an extremely fast runner, is on this list. So I, I just think it's kind of cool. Like, this is a very easy way 
you know, home the first because it's so static. There's nothing with the extra feet. It's very clear. Oh, these are the guys who are the fastest. Yeah, I think, what, and I think what, what, with with Kiermaier is that he does not have the body type of the typical speedster. So people don't think. I mean, he's built like. I mean, he's built more like a slugger, frankly. Um, so I think that's sort of why, you know, people may not think of him as being as fast as like the fast guys. Usually they're a little more, a little smaller. Um, this is the fastest guys in the game. You think of Billy Burns, you think of Hamilton, um, Alex Smith. So, like, Kiermaier definitely kind of towers over those guys. Yeah, I got my preliminary first look at our outfield speed metric, right? And uh, unsurprisingly, Billy Hamilton and Byron Buxton were the top two. The least shocking thing in the world, right? Kevin Kiermaier cracked the top five, which you might not think about. You think of him as a fast guy, but you don't necessarily think about him as an elite guy. And I think that's a big part of why he's such an amazing outfielder. Yes, his instincts are great. Yes, he actually makes the catch when he gets there. Uh, but his speed is, is underrated. That's a big part of what makes him so great. Yeah, for sure. So I think that's cool. Uh, so that is, that's our show for this week. Uh, is the, thanks for listening. This is the MLB.com StackCast podcast. I'm Mike Petriello, Matt Myers. Catch you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion. Championship team.